Welcome to Talking Buildings. Broadcasting from the world-famous Bondi Beach. Bondi Radio. I'm Paul Angus, Sibsy Australia and New Zealand Regional Chair. As always, I'm joined by the ever-smiling and cheerful co-host Sharon Pustonji, Sibsy BDM. Great to see you again, Sharon. I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts on today's theme, Engineering Excellence, plus your rapid roundup section. So how have you been since the last podcast, Sharon? Hi, Paul. It's great to be here and nice to see you again, too. We are really getting into the groove here, broadcasting and reaching out to our listeners from the world-famous Bondi Beach. I've been great since we last spoke. Thanks, and hope you have, too. There are a lot of great, exciting, and innovative projects occurring behind the scenes, keeping me very busy, mostly revolving around education and training. That's great to hear, Sharon. Thanks for that. I'm really looking forward to seeing the new projects flourishing, which you can learn about more about by signing up to our monthly e-newsletter by visiting our website, www.sibsi.org.au. I'm really glad you mentioned innovation there, Sharon, as that is the key to our theme on today's show. The world is experiencing unprecedented unprecedented transformation driven by a number of dynamic forces that are causing engineers to fundamentally rethink the way buildings and infrastructure are funded, designed, constructed, maintained and operated. The challenges facing societies globally are much different today than in previous years. A fast expanding population is becoming more demanding and the built environment is expected to push boundaries, inspire and amaze relax and reassure to make our lives easier and far more rewarding. At the same time, governments, the funders, developers and owners are increasingly constrained by strict environmental goals and continuing economic pressures. Well, engineering has a pivotal role to play in creatively meeting this dual charge for efficiency and sustainability. As social, environmental, political and economic needs are advancing, so the construction industry must break away from traditional processes and embrace technological change. As engineers, our challenge is to tackle these issues by evolving the parameters of construction in line with the world around us. We must question ourselves. Is the same old method actually the best method? If we don't have the answers to hand, we can find them through innovation, collaboration, determination and well-thought-out research. The construction industry is exposed to many drivers for change. Change may come from large, long, longer timescale phenomena such as a shifting demographics, urban growth and climate change, or from nearer-term demands from our clients and governments for productivity, sustainability and performance improvements. Modern design and analysis tools allow contractor teams to rapidly redesign and tailor buildings and infrastructure to what they want to build in order to differentiate their offer from the competition. In other words, a client will often be offered different solutions from various contractors, each using the products and systems that they have developed to deliver efficiency and client value. In this scenario, competition is driven by the ability of the contractors to meet or exceed the client's goals and their performance requirements. Those who can deliver innovative and integrated solutions most most cost-effectively are the winners. Progressive thinking is vital for solving the issues of the modern world. The pressure for innovative, integrated buildings and infrastructure solutions is being felt across the industry. From a systems perspective, innovative products available include smart wall, 
bathroom modules, accommodation <coughs> modules, modular risers, modular wiring, modular service distribution, modular plant rooms, and integrated building management systems. That's right, Sharon. And one of the principal ways to deliver innovation is through the Design for Manufacture and Assembly, or DFMA for short, which leads us nicely introducing our special guest for our podcast, Angus McFarlane, who joins us today. Angus is no stranger to innovation and smart thinking, being the structural engineering leader at Lang O'Rourke. That's right, Paul. I believe Lang O'Rourke set a goal for 70% of constructed assets manufactured off-site. They're working towards a 60% reduction of labor on-sites and a 30% reduction of overall construction program time. While working to eliminate accidents and minimize carbon emissions, and it's through innovation that they are able to achieve all this. I'm particularly excited to learn how important innovation is at Lang O'Rourke and how construction techniques are pushing those boundaries, which is our whole theme for this podcast, Engineering Excellence. Welcome to the show, Angus, and on behalf of SIBSI Australia and New Zealand region and our enthusiastic and dedicated listeners, thank you very much for joining us today down at Bondi Beach. Thank you for inviting me, Sharon Paul, and thanks also to the CIBSE. It's great to be here at Bondi. It's my first time ever. I love being in Sydney for four years. Shame I brought the Scottish weather with me, though. <laughs> yeah, it's unfortunate. It's very windy today and it's, it's raining and it's horrible down there. Okay, Angus, so we'll, we'll go straight into it. So can I, um, can I start by asking just a little bit about your background? Perhaps you can provide you know, our listeners with a brief summary of your experience in engineering and what makes you tick along. I'm a structural engineer of about 35 years' experience. I'm a fellow of the Institution of Structural Engineers, fellow of the Institution of Civil Engineers, fellow of Engineers Australia. Um, I tend to think of myself as being a, a problem solver. Uh, I like to bring innovative solutions and cost-effective solutions to the workplace. That's fantastic, Angus. Um, I've also worked with Langer Ork on some fantastic and significant projects both here in Australia as well as in the UK. I was really impressed to learn how about Langer Ork are investing a lot in the design for manufacturing assembly, which relies on off-site manufacturing and digital modelling. So could you um, elaborate more on this innovative technique and possibly provide a few you know, examples of projects that have benefited from this and maybe explain the advantages this approach provides to the industry overall? Firstly, I'd, I'd like to point out that DFMA, Design for Manufacturing Assembly, isn't new. Mm -hmm. I'm an avid reader of history, and the ancient Romans used to use DFMA, both in their permanent structures like aqueducts and in their temporary structures. Okay. For instance, every night a, a Roman legion would build a small fortified town which they carried with them. They would direct this in, in the late evening in about five, five hours. So DFMA is not new. Mm -hmm. Going forward a bit, um, Samuel Colt used DFMA to increase the manufacture of his guns. Yeah. And everyone's heard of uh, Henry Ford, oh, yeah. who introduced mass production and uh, DFMA takes, uh, techniques to the car industry, yeah. which changed it from a craft-based industry to mass uh, production. Mm -hmm. More recently, you have the aerospace industry, which uses it all the time. But probably more akin to construction is the shipbuilding industry, because they are one-offs, more like building projects. You don't churn out lots and lots of ships that are all the same. 
each tends to be a unique project. So DFMA applied to the shipbuilding industry is similar to DFMA to the construction industry. Okay, so well, CBC have recently launched a digital engineering platform, including the formation of the Society of Digital Engineering, which is open for membership from all those involved in digital engineering, building information modeling, software for design and analysis of buildings, computer-aided facilities management, and any other related activities. How important is digital engineering for design collaboration from the earliest stages of a project? And what are the tangible benefits in terms of cost, speed, and sustainability? Digital engineering is very important. And you get the biggest bang for buck or or most cost effectiveness if you do it early on in the project. But you can do it later on in the project. However, digital engineering is only part of the FMA. In some of my presentations, I show what's the DFMA envelope, which are three spheres of DFMA. And in the middle of, or the intersection of these three spheres, you've got digital engineering. So that, that way you get the most out of the DFMA by digital engineering. In the DFMA envelope, the, the other parts of it are the models, that can be the BIM, the building information model, it could be the engineer structural models. And one of the other sectors, you have the produ- production module, that could be computer-controlled robots or computer-controlled steel erection. And the most important part, which is sometimes part of the BIM, is the metadata. The metadata is where you store all the critical project parameters. They can be anything that you want to monitor in the project and actually include in your design, such as sustainability, costs, program, that sort of thing. Okay, thank you. Um, So a common theme in the construction industry seems to be the feeling, uh, feeling amongst clients and architects that everything should be unique. Look, and I can see how this can be natural to some extent, the desire to create a fantastic and iconic building. But if we don't challenge this conception, is construction always going to be at the expense, uh, sort of be an expensive and unaffordable activity? Does reinventing the wheel each time create um, quality problems? And how do you uh, blaze a trail to convince the clients and architects to change their approach and run with innovative technology in such a way that others can follow? Well, there are several ways, Sharon, and that's (laughs) quite a long question. I'll try to remember them all to answer them. Firstly, on uniqueness... Um, the modular construction, which is DFMA, because it's difficult to do modular construction without DFMA, where you're designing your modular buildings for assembly, ease of assembly. More and more nowadays, you come across the term mass customization. That's where you can have unique buildings. So you get the benefits of the mass production, but every building can be unique. One of the other ways to uh, get architects and clients, a lot of them are already on board with digital engineering. More and more nowadays, projects are, the the contracts for projects actually issue a 3D model 
or the BIM, the Building Information Model, and the design team then can add to that, enhance it, and the project documentation is more and more electronic. So DFMA is not about to happen next year. It's already there and already is constant in a lot of our projects and projects that are, that are being led. Right. I recall reading an article in Langer Orc's Engineering Excellence Journal a few years ago, um, and it kind of made me sit up and take notice. So being a hydraulic engineer myself, um, it was the lessons learned experience that you guys have in plant rooms especially. What I, what I learned was that often due to space constraints, risers in plant rooms require a designer to go back to the drawing board every time. However, this article was about a study of approximately a thousand different buildings, and it was highlighted that there's only really three different configurations of plant room that will actually fit in any type of building. Can you let us know what other exciting construction developments in relation to the design and manufacturing assemblies occurring at uh, Langer Rock? I'm not a services engineer, Paul, but I, I do recall some projects when we had uh, huge plant rooms, and when you go in them after the building's completed, you've got a small piece of kit in the corner and, and square metres of space all over the, the, the place. Yeah. I also think with plant rooms, from a structural perspective, you can actually use them to improve your buildings. Normally you have vents and things into the plant rooms, and I greatly believe in getting something for nothing, mm -hmm. you can use these vents to reduce the wind load by letting the, the wind bleed through the plant rooms. And that reduces the wind load and makes the buildings more cost-effective. Mm -hmm. Some of the examples of, of services are Sir Francis Crick's in London, mm -hmm. where it's very tight um, plant room spaces, very, t very difficult access. The plant room equipment was all made modular and trucked in and taken in by forklift trucks. Yeah. The whole thing was plug and play, mm -hmm. easy to connect up, so you've got very little labor on site. Similarly in Leiden Hall in London, all the vertical risers are modular, so they're brought in, a, a, in a crane, and I guess, again, plug and play. play. Here in Australia, <clears throat> some of the projects that we've been doing with AMP, we're looking at floor cassettes, a floor cassette is where you merge the services with the structural floor. Mm -hmm. So you drop the floor in, then hook up the services. Right. And that improves the, the building services, improve, improves the speed of erection. Wow. Exciting stuff, huh? Mm. It makes much more sense to prefabricate <coughs> off-site with modular buildings. And you just touched upon it there with risers. I mean, that's one of the best examples that I've ever seen uh, myself. I was involved in a big custodial establishment back in the UK. And, um, you know, with a custodial establishment, you've got multiple risers for, you know, maybe three or four floors. Um, but it occurs quite frequently for all the different cells. So um, with, um, with Y risers especially, with kind of back-to-back cells and all the services that are required to be concealed for obvious reasons, um, you know, we allowed the entire riser, including mechanical, electrical and hydraulics, to all be modelled in BIM, allowing the mass production of the entire riser to be prefabricated off-site. And I remember watching each of these multiple risers simply being dropped into place, and it was within millimetres of precision. It was fantastic. So what would you consider to be the most extensive example of innovative technology, and how did it save time, money, and also carbon emissions? I've already touched on that in answer to the previous question with 
risers and floor cassettes, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. But what, what I would stress as a structural engineer, I bust my gut to try and save money on the structural solution. Yeah. But it's got to be borne in mind that structure is typically 20% of the building. Mm -hmm. Whereas MEP, that's mechanical and engineering and plumbing services, are about 40% of the building. Therefore, you get more bang for buck in using DFMA in building services. So it's, I think it's imperative that we move forward yeah. to the DFMA and the modular approach to building services because they're labor intensive by doing it the old way. Is that relatively, so is using DFMA in um, building services, is that relatively uncommon still? Um, being a structural engineer, I, t I tend to look at MEP engineers as being the dinosaurs of the industry. <laughs> I, I don't mis really mean to be disparaging. A, l a lot of that's to do with the way it's set up because a lot of the contracts are performance specifications which are given to subcontractors so the, the MEP designers don't have a lot of control of what goes in. Right. But that is changing, and more and more consultants are actually specifying how it goes in, modular construction, that sort of thing. So they're, they're probably a bit later, MEP's probably a bit later in coming to the, the DFMA table than, say, structural engineers or architects. Mm -hmm. okay. I mean, I've seen a lot more um, recent times with plant rooms, especially um, from the fire fire protection perspective, and they've actually um, you know, they, they encapsulate them within like, the big steel shipping containers, for example, and they can just drop it into a job, and the whole pumps and all the caboobles all sort of uh, piped in and ready to go, and it's just a plug and play, like you say, and um, and also in corridors as well, I've seen that quite a lot with services. So it's all been uh, you know manufacturer off site, and they can actually do the whole corridor. And then just connect the branches into each of the, um, you know, whether it's residential or if it's um, like aged care, for example, as well. So there's a lot. There is a lot happening, and also bathroom pods as well. That's yeah. been that's been on the go for a while as well. And that's that you can just literally drop the bathroom pods in, to, um, you know, for residential or for um, uh, hotels as well, which is working really well. So again, you just plug and play. It makes it much simpler. But I think there's a lot of um, there's been a lot of um, how can I say it. Um, but I, uh, I worry with um, these being manufactured, for example, in China or something like that, and then the plumbers have got to take responsibility for the pipe work and who's, you know, who's taking responsibility for all that. So that's, that's occurring in the background as well. Yeah, yeah there is, Paul, a, a, a good, um, what, what should you say, protocol for that. I, yeah. I think it's Watermark. And, oh, yeah? Yeah. And I, I, I was chair of the Modular Construction Code Board. I, I stood down in January to let someone else take over. Yeah. And th that's um, a group of people from the whole of the industry were producing a new modular code for specifically for modular buildings because they are modular buildings are different from ordinary conventional construction because the loading can be different the, the module can be on the back of a ship or a truck. It can then be in a crane and a pendulum, and then it gets put into the building. And the loading during the transport of the, the module can actually be higher than it's in final place. Uh -huh. And part of that modular code, we've alluded to the watermark theory, um, 
protocol. Yeah. And it'd be good to get that sort of thing, as you say, for bathroom pods. Mm -hmm. Bathroom pods are not new, but when I was structural designer with Bison Concrete in Falkirk in Scotland in the 1980s, yeah. we always used bathroom pods in the hotels there. Yeah. That's, that's where I first came across it as well in the 90s, um, actually in Aberdeen as well. I think it's quite a big thing for offshore, for like oil rigs and that, and that's where it's kind of adapted from as well, isn't it? Okay, thank you, Angus. And now it's time for a little fun and light-hearted questions revolving around you. Over to you, Sharon, for the Rapid Roundup. It's time for Rapid Roundup. Bondi Radio. Thanks, Paul. Rapid Roundup. This is a chance for the listeners to gain some insight into the mind of the real Angus McFarlane. When you're ready, I will fire some questions your way and you tell us the first thing that comes to your mind. Ready? Ready. Okay. <laughs> so, what is your favorite building in the whole world? The Emirates Towers in Dubai. It's actually two buildings. One's an office tower, one's a hotel tower, just lovely, clean, triangular architectural lines. Oh, brilliant. And what is the most innovative project you have worked on, so the one that you are most proud of? Um, again, in Dubai, it's Dubai Festival City. That's one kilometre long by 400 metres wide, basement to resist eight metres of sea level, a shopping mall on top. It was built without any movement joints at all and waterproof concrete. That is no waterproofing. Wonderful. And what is your favorite TV show? Pardon? <laughs> your favorite TV oh, the, show? The Block. I love The Block. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and apart from talking buildings, of course, what podcasts are you listening to at the moment? I sometimes listen to podcasts from 2GB, you know, Ray Hadley and Alan Jones. I also think uh, I, I listen to, not so much listen to, I like webinars. It's a good way of learning. Yeah. And what world problems keep you up at night? None really. Um, I follow climate <laughs> change, but I'm, I tend to be a bit sceptical about that, so I won't say any more. <laughs> <laughs> Enough said. And your favourite restaurant? Um, my fa favourite restaurant is Mosaic in Ubud in Bali. It's one of the world's top ten best restaurants. Ah, where is Ubud in Bali? Is that in... I, I have a house in Bali. My wife and I have a house in Bali, and we, we like fine dining when we're there. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And what is your favourite city in Australia or New Zealand, apart from your own, apart from Sydney? Well, I do like Sydney, but my first love is Perth, especially ah. for the good restaurants there. <laughs> Wonderful. And when it comes time to relax, would you prefer a hammock by a pool or a trek through the rainforest? Oh, definitely the hammock by the pool, thank <laughs> you. <laughs> Wonderful. And what celebrity have you ever been told that you look like? Well, you two guys can see me. I don't think I look like any celebrity, <laughs> but, but I wouldn't mind looking like George Clooney. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, wish list. Um, and who is your real-life mentor or hero? Oh, Benjamin Baker. He, he was the designer of the Fourth Rail Bridge, which was completed in 1890. It was based on a Tibetan design. He also had a couple of Japanese engineers training with him. It was the longest bridge in the world for quite a while after it was completed. 
Okay, wonderful. And you mentioned that your favorite show was The Block. Um, what's the last DIY project you worked on and did it achieve engineering excellence? <laughs> I um, recently completed her main bathroom, which is absolutely fantastic. <laughs> but I must admit, I did have the help of a tiler and a builder. <laughs> but I, I can say it's an undoubted success. It looks success. It looks fantastic. No, no doubt due to your project management. Yes, because of my project <laughs> management. Agreed. And which would be worse, trapped in a room with poisonous spiders or poisonous snakes? Not really bothered about either. <laughs> I don't mind snakes and I don't mind spiders. I mean, being Scottish, we're, we're brought up that spiders actually saved Scotland, where Robert Bruce was in a cave hiding from the English and he watched the spider trying to build its web and it tried eight times and failed. And on the ninth time, it succeeded in getting across the cave and started building its web. And that supposedly inspired Robert Bruce to become King of Scotland. So I quite like spiders. <laughs> Great. Then you're, you're um, well climatized for Australia then, aren't you? And, okay, well, thank you, Angus. Well done. Some interesting responses there. I'll let you catch your breath before we move back into the theme of engineering excellence. Rapid Roundup. Bondi Radio. Angus, that was a great rapid roundup there and great fun replies to Sharon's fantastic questions. She certainly made you think on your feet there, so back to the theme, engineering excellence. In order to deliver the certainty that clients rightly demand, the construction industry must adapt, and quickly. At the same time, there are other challenges that make the, ch the case for change overwhelming. A protracted skills shortage that threatens to hinder the growth of the sector, also the rising costs of labour and materials and diminishing natural resources. All of this in the context of a growing global population in urgent need of an economically and environmentally sustainable built environment. The construction industry can and must advise solutions to these pressures. So how do you approach the challenges to improve the way that which clients and their delivery partners interact with one another in order to embrace change? Well, DFMA provides more project certainty. But one of the ways you can interact with clients is show them other projects, successful projects, that have been delivered using DFMA methodology. I don't know any unsuccessful projects mm -hmm. that have used DFMA. One of the ways you can do this as well is by changing the, the contract methodology and going to partnering type of contract Okay. rather than the, the basic tendering project, t uh, of tendering for a project. Mm -hmm. Tendering gives the lowest cost for a specified product. It doesn't necessarily give the lowest cost for the best product. Okay. So in the, the partnering type of um, contract, the, the client engages a team, usually a consortium of contractors and designers, You'll give them a performance contract and they will go out and build the best design, the best solution for that performance. Mm -hmm. So you get the best product, the best solution and the best product. So I think that's the way to do that. Um, regarding sustainability, I think you mentioned that at the end there, Paul, did yeah. you? Yeah. yeah. Sustainability, if you remember me mentioning the meta database oh yeah um 
Sustainability is one of the parameters you can put into the meta database. For instance, DFMA gives nearly zero wastage. The, the, the wastage is pretty well zero in the factory mm -hmm. because it's all collected and recycled and it's minimized on site. Yeah. All you need to do is go around any traditional conventional construction site and you see the huge amount of wastage that's there. Mm -hmm. DFMA deletes that type of thing. Also in DFMA database, you can put other environmental parameters in. You can min minimize truck journeys, okay. noise nuisance, that sort of thing. Yeah. What it allows to do, the, the, the meta the metadata and the 3D model, which is the digital engineering model, it allows all stakeholders to engage the project. That's technical and non-technical stakeholders. They can easily see what's happening. They can see you can do what ifs, how to improve it, that sort of thing. If you want to, you can see what's on program, what's behind program, what's on the critical path. It makes the whole thing far more interactive. Wonderful. So all of what we've been discussing, Angus, is specifically aimed towards the construction of new buildings. How does the design for manufacturing assembly relate to the, to the planned reuse of, say, pre-loved buildings, which are often heritage listed? And what are the key challenges you face with renovations? Yeah, yeah DFMA and the, the, especially the 3D model for heritage buildings can be very useful. As a young engineer, I spent a long time, a, a large part of the time, renovating and updating a Georgian and Victorian apartments in Edinburgh. And those buildings had been a mishmash of various renovations. Some of them were uh, structurally unsound because someone had taken a wall out from one floor and another wall out from another floor, mm -hmm. and the whole building was structurally unstable. But DFMA, what you can do, you can build that model, you can see what renovations can be, do, can be done, you have a permanent record there so any future re recommendations can be done safely and efficiently. Also a new build, I worked before coming to Australia, about five years ago I worked in Seoul in South Korea and there they renovated the town hall. That was a building of about 100, 150 years old. And how they did that was put a, a glass enclosure, a lovely, architecturally stunning glass structure around it, a bit like the Louvre. Mm -hmm. And that not only brought the building into the 20th century because it cleaned the stone, it also protect, protected the stone fabric from attack from the vehicular traffic in Seoul, which has a very bad traffic problem. So mm -hmm. DFMA and new techniques can be used that way as well. You can make old buildings look fantastic and bring them into a modern environment. Wonderful, thank you. Awesome. Well, one, one item we've not touched upon in great depth at all is really about health and safety. I mean, when you think about off-site production increasing, what are the benefits from a health and safety perspective for the construction industry in a whole? Oh, there are, are many benefits, Paul. It's, uh, I've, I've mentioned the, the, the metadata or the database. Mm -hmm. One of the things we always do very is one of the most important ones in laying a rock is put health and safety in. We have a tagline in laying a rock, and that 
think it's quite a bad tagline. It says, build twice, one digitally and once, once in reality. I think we should change that to build correctly, once digitally and then once in actuality. But the build digitally, what you can do is look at all the health hazards, the safety hazards mm -hmm. of your structure or your building, you know, like tow boards and whatever. You can walk through that digitally, remove the hazards, read, try and design them out if you can, because yeah. that's the best way. If you can't design them out, put improved safety features in, that sort of thing. So in short, in summary, mm -hmm. from DFMA, health and, health and safety aspects are prime importance. Thank you. Thank you. So what are the challenges faced with off-site production? I mean, for example, with the vast geography challenges associated across Australia and New Zealand between cities and construction sites, having one central plant must create a few logistical transport barriers? I mean, does it? Um, a couple of questions there. I'll, I'll go on to the transport first, and then the other things, logistics was a, a, pl a plant, did you mention? Yep. Um, the large distance to be tra travelled in Australia can be a problem, but, it, but it's also an opportunity. Uh, I remember a project a few years ago where Hickory <coughs> Building Systems in Melbourne, they were doing a hotel in Port Hedland, and they use volumetric modular construction. Volumetric modular construction is where you have entire rooms or entire apartments or part of apartments, that sort of thing. And what they did there was put those hotel rooms on the back of a truck and, and trucked them for 4,000, like 4,500 kilometres to Port Hedland. Now, that can be very cost-effective because when you're at remote sites, labour is very expensive. I think the people in Port Hedland won't like them being called remote. So I'm, I'm actually <laughs> thinking of other places like Cape Lambert and Wheatstone, which I've been to quite a few times in WA. But it can be very cost-effective because you only need a small team of about three or four people to erect the building. So what you lose in doing the modules and trucking them, you gain in the, the savings and the speed of erection and the small team. Now, the... The other question, what was that again? Could you remind me, please, Sharon? Yeah, yeah. Um, the other question was, um, so in terms of transport. It had well, a central plant, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. So, like, if you if you're kind of have all of your construction being done centrally and then... Um, it, it doesn't necessarily need to be done centrally. At Linger Road, we have a, a precast concrete factory... We're currently building a structural steel factory for the housing boom in the UK. That is a huge investment. But you don't need a purpose-made factory for DFMA. DFMA is a thought process. First of all, you design, and you design for manufacture, and you design for assembly. You can use the existing um, what is the product base, your, your existing suppliers. For, for example, if you're doing a building, you can look at timber suppliers and go for timber buildings, which I'm very interested in, which 
gets my re renewability and sustainability credentials up. <laughs> you can look at precast concrete, that sort of thing. So you can use the existing supply chain. Right. I reiterate, it's a thought process. Mm -hmm. Yes, you can get more efficiencies using factories and robotic builds and that, but that is at the very top of the DFMA ch chain. You can start at the bottom and gradually use DFMA from 2D drawing onwards. I mentioned the three spheres of DFMA earlier on in this interview, but in laying a rope, we also have another slide which is um, more of a linear process. It's 2D, whereas some of the contracts you have 2D drawings. You then move on to 3D, that is build your 3D model. If it's not already been supplied by the client, then you go 4D, which is the time aspect. So you've got the 3D, 4D, that's programming, that's planning and programming. Then you have 5D, which is cost. So you have the five essential elements there. Then you can go on to 6D, which is asset management. So you're looking at the whole life cycle cost. So when you're designing for manufacture and assembly, you're not just designing for ease of assembly. Yeah. You're also designing for how can I use this asset? Is it used efficiently? And something we've looked at in the modular code is what, what's rather crudely or clumsily called disassembly, which is demolition, you can actually build in demolition into the whole life cycle so that you can demolish the structure or amend it slightly. Then 7D, the seventh dimension is learn from mistakes or gain your project knowledge. What can you do that's better? What can you do that's worse? Getting back to the 6D and the demolition or refurbishment, the Japanese in modular construction are very good in that they have their modular buildings. You can start off with, say, a bedroom for a married couple, mm -hmm. then plug in another bedroom when you have a child or two, then you have your family home, two, three bedroom family home. That lasts good for 20 years, 20 years, and when the children leave the nest, you can unplug these modules, it can be taken away and reused. So you've got to look at the, the whole life cycle cost and DFMA, digital engineering, the, ho the whole me metadata encourages that process. That's great. Thanks. Fantastic. How does um, innovative techniques contribute and or push boundaries in terms of sustainability? I mean, we're thinking more upon late neighbours and Green Star, which, you know, obviously is, is not really reflected upon in, in the structures itself. But do you actually get involved in challenging and changing industry standards or legislation? Well, not so much challenging and changing things like neighbours, but, but I do remember when it was in Dubai, mm -hmm. we had a lot of our buildings had to be lead certified oh yeah and that was very good and, and what we did in dubai for instance we used pfa pulverized fuel ash or blast furnace slag yep. in the the concrete mainly because that made the concrete more durable but also you got lead points for that mm -hmm. but the downside of that was the fuel ash or the blast furnace slag was brought in a tanker from south africa or India, right. and those tankers are specialised tankers, yeah. and they went back to their port of or origin empty. Uh -huh. So I think 
you wasted a lot of the renewability and sustainability points that way, although it wasn't counted in lead uh-huh. or neighbours. But yes, we do challenge industry. Mm-hmm. I touched on with the, the modular code board yeah. and the, the new code. It's been launched, it was launched in Australia last month at Prefab Oz and has been launched next week at the Council of Tall Buildings and Ur- Urban Habitat in Sydney mm-hmm. uh, on the, the 30th of October. That has a large section both on architecture and on building services. Yeah. And there we're looking at how building services can be sustainable. And a, a lot of the sustainability, getting back to my, some of my previous comments, is lack of <coughs> reducing waste. Mm-hmm. Because a, a lot of your building services can be coming in your modules, whether they're flat pack or yeah. volumetric. So you drop in your, your walls or whatever, everything's plug and play. And another part of that is you're looking at sustainability, obviously insulation, sound insulation, that sort of thing. Uh-huh. So where can our listeners get hold of this, um, this new guide that you're talking about, this modular, modular buildings? You, you can get it uh, and from, in Australia, you, you, you just contact me at Lane O'Rourke and mm-hmm. I can either put you, because developed uh, with industry and Monash University, I can put you in, in touch with the team there who can distribute it. It's currently free of charge. Okay. Uh, I also have about 30 or 40 USB flash drives, <laughs> so if people are nice to me, I can send them a flash drive of it. Brilliant, thank you. But what we'll do is um, when we do the um, the actual podcast itself, we'll put it on the Sibsi website, so you can um, go to www.sibsi.org.au and we'll put your contact details there as well, Angus, to um, get further information. Thanks for that. So finally, with innovation key to advancing new technology, which is advancing really rapidly, what does the future of design and manufacturing assembly hold? And how can we as an industry embrace and implement this to support future education and training networks? So what's coming next? Um, the, the future education, I actually quite like, and I touched on it in the, the quick answer thing earlier yeah. when I was asked about podcasts. I actually like webinars because you don't need to leave your work to go to for half a day or a day's conference. You, you can actually plug in to a webinar that's of interest to you. Mm-hmm. So I think for education, I think webinars are probably the, the way for, forward. Regarding innovations, we're, we're doing a lot of innovations. The first one you'll hear a lot about is 3D printing, you know, 3D printing of buildings and whatever. Uh-huh. We don't think 3D printing of concrete buildings is quite there yet. It's still quite crude. However, we've developed a, a 3D technology, 3D printing technology, which is currently being deployed in Crossrail in the UK, in London in the UK. Okay. That's currently the biggest project in Europe. Uh-huh. And what we're doing is 3D printing architectural precast panels there. They're complicated, curved, three-dimensional shapes. And the technology we use there is we print wax moulds. Mm-hmm and then form the concrete in a conventional manner, yeah. then you melt the wax from it, and that's very sustainable, and 99.99% of the wax is recovered. Uh-huh. So we look at that as the way ahead. We're currently investigating 3D printing of metal to print uh, 
very difficult metal components, you know, like joints for complicated joints for steel structures, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Another one we're looking at, and we've got a huge team, about one-third of our NXG team, we're about 24 people mm -hmm. in Chippendale in Sydney, is ro robotics. Not just robotics to actually build things. Mm -hmm. We're actually looking, which I think is of more immediate use, are exoskeletons. That's things that you can either clamp onto part of a building which will hold and move things for workers. Yeah. Or you can actually wear the exoskeleton. It can be an arm or two arms, a bit like the bionic man, <laughs> and it helps people to move around heavier weights without injury. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, the, the, this, that, that sort of technology is, is already here, and, and I see that as being a very useful implementation of robotics. Yeah. Other things are uh, augmented and virtual reality. Mm -hmm. Augmented reality, a, lo a lot of people don't know the, the difference between augmented reality and virtual reality, so perhaps you should explain. Yeah, that'd be great, thanks. Augmented reality is what you do. You impose your build... I'll talk about a building, but it could be anything. You impose your building on reality. Mm -hmm. So your new building can be seen in the background of the actual context. Mm -hmm. I'll give an example here, and it's not um, a building. It's we won the Sydney Light Rail contract in George Street, and one of the reasons we won that was through augmented reality. The Minister of Transport could stand in George Street, yeah. take out his favourite tablet, be an iPad or a Samsung or whatever, switch it on, and he would see the actual George Street in the background, yeah. and he could see the trams whizzing up and down George Street. Really? So that's augmented reality. Uh -huh. It's... Reality is augmented, is reality augmented by a, a computer model. Wow. Visual reality is always, uh, <coughs> virtual reality is something slightly different mm -hmm. where you are actually in a virtual model of the, the structure. Now, I actually think this is a, an absolutely fantastic technology and it's developing very fast, both augmented and virtual reality, because it's been used by the gaming industry. Mm -hmm. So it's going forward by leaps and bounds. But I'll give an example, you can walk around a building with the client. You could have a client in New York, an architect in Hong Kong, and the, say the structural designer or, or whoever here in Sydney, mm -hmm. you could meet up in our building, and I've actually done this, you could meet up in our building of Mount Street, you can have a, um, a 3D representation of the client there, the same of the architect. Mm -hmm. You can have me there as George Clooney and my George Clooney <laughs> representation. In your dreams. And you can point out things there. And you can walk around. And I see that taken over from video conferences, whatever, so you can actually be there. You can say, what happens if I change that wall to marble? Yeah. These MEP services look terrible. What happens if we run them there? It's that sort of thing. That's virtual reality. And I can see it taking over from telecommunications in a large way and, mm -hmm. and taking over from face-to-face -face meetings. Yeah, yeah. 
So your um, so your role in the Engineering Excellence Centre. Do you see that sort of um, growing over the next five to ten years? Do you see that as as being an important part, a way forward? Good, good point, Sharon. Five to ten years. Um, my my director and lead of Engineering Excellence tells us we've got to put ourselves out of a job in five years. Really? <laughs> but it doesn't really mean that. Is our mission is really that the business as a whole in five years' time should be doing what we're doing in engineering excellence now. Mm-hmm. Five years from now, we'll be doing the next five years. Yeah. That's why we're looking to 10 years out, you know, the 3D printing, the yeah. robotics, augmented reality, virtual reality, that sort of thing. Wonderful. Um, I just want to say one extra thing. You were, you were talking about webinars before, and I just wanted to mention to our listeners that shortly on our Civs ANZ website, um, we are going to be running a series of free introductory to building services webinars covering a wide range of um, services. So it's worth going on and having a look there and um, you know, just sort of logging on there and, and having from your desk or at home uh, a listen. So, yeah, thanks, Paul. Fantastic. Well done for mentioning that. I was going to mention that as well, yeah. So we're currently recording those, and it'll be under our umbrella of um, all disciplines. So there'll be various um, various sort of teaser sections there as well. And we're, we're also looking at possibly um, producing some uh, technical training sessions. It might be half-day or, or full-day training sessions as well, off the back of those webinars, depending on what's, so, what's popular. Alrighty, yeah. thank you so much for joining us, Angus. It's really been fascinating to learn and get an insight into the future of engineering. Oh, thank you for, for having me, bo- both of you. Uh, uh, I could go on for another hour, probably. <laughs> it is, I've still got a lot to say, and uh-huh. I've, I've probably missed out more than, 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 than I should have said, but I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. That's great. You. You've been really, really great. Um, so a big thank you again to our special guest, Angus McFarlane, and, of course, the delightful and always smiling Sharon Pistonji. <laughs> So to wrap up, here are some key takeaways from today's thought-provoking session. We've heard today how Lang O'Rourke's Engineering Excellence Programme responds to this challenge through its unique and proven value proposition is delivering certainty across the entire project spectrum for clients using a process of early collaborative engagement that optimises the four pillars of our service offerings, which is excellence in engineering, digital engineering, design for the manufacturing assembly, and off-site manufacturing and direct delivery. This integrative model of project delivery is a value-based approach with risk-sharing features unlike other, more traditional models. Fundamentally to its success is the project owner, the designer, and the deliverer working as one team to develop, define, and deliver the project. By strategically aligning and harmonizing participant roles, underlying motivations and programs of activities on a project to utilize each participant's best talents and abilities at the most beneficial moment, success becomes project-centric. So embracing an integrated delivery approach that promotes collaboration in this way, the focus is on collectively achieving sheer goals other than meeting individual agendas. This is one of the fundamental tenets of our engineering enterprise ambition. Therefore, success is measured by the degree to which common goals are achieved, which is a win-win for everyone. We also heard a little bit about digital engineering and how SIBSI have recently launched a digital engineering platform, including the formation of the Society of the Digital Engineering, which is open for membership from all those involved in digital engineering. 
building, information modeling, software for design and analysis of buildings, computer-aided facility management, and any other related activities. So, in future podcasts, you'll be hearing from the Sibji legend, that's Steve Hennessy, the AKA, the International Sustainability Guru, who will be sharing his thoughts, his knowledge, and experiences. We'll also be joined by um, Candice from Cicero, who will be elaborate and provide some good news stories regarding the STEM projects, inspiring young, junior, and high school students into engineering, plus the incredible efforts that are focusing on encouraging and promoting women in engineering as well. We'd also like to take this opportunity to express our thanks to the industry sponsors, ARBS, who have made all this possible. Don't forget that the ARBS Expo is coming to Sydney in May 2018. So as a founding member of ARBS, Sibsi is proud to support the 2018 ARBS exhibition in May next year, returning to Sydney after four years away. ARBS will be celebrating 20 years as Australia's only HVAC and refrigeration in building services exhibition. The ARBS exhibition will connect over 350 local, national and international manufacturers and suppliers with thousands of industry decision makers, specifiers, engineers, contractors and trade technicians. So discover all the, na- all the major national, international and multinational exhibitors who will display their very latest products and services in one convenient location. Also, Sibsi will be at um, stand 4147, so be sure to drop in and say hello. Please subscribe to our broadcast, where you can replay previous podcasts and keep up to date with future thought-provoking discussions. If you want to find, more out, if you want to find out more about Sibsi, then be sure to look us up at www.sibsi.org.au, where you can sign up for our monthly e-news as well. Our show is prepared and produced by Sheena Alexandra and Keith Hodgson at Bondi Radio on the world-famous Bondi Beach. Talking Buildings is a Sibsi Australia and New Zealand production. I'm Paul Angus, and thanks for listening. Join us for the next episode of Talking Buildings. Broadcasting from the world-famous Bondi Beach. Bondi.